Welcome to Death Readers. I'm Doug. I'm Rob. This is episode 88 of Death Readers, the podcast where we read through books for the first time. If this is your first time listening to Death Readers, uh, the way we do it is we've picked a book that at least one of us haven't, hasn't read, and we read through it chapter by chapter, page by page, uh, and we take notes along the way. In this episode of Death Readers, we're reading through the first segment of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan of the Apes. The first in the Tarzan series, written in, uh, or published in 1912. Um, in this episode, we're going to be reading through chapters 1 through 8. That means 1 up to and including chapter 8, and no more. What are those chapters titled? Those chapters are titled Out to Sea, Up Through, Through, not and to, including. But, th- but through and including sure. the Treetop Hunter. Okay. That's what I read. Isn't that so great? So if anyone had any trouble understanding that, <sighs> then they could, they wanted to make it very clear, stop reading after you read The Treetop Hunter. Okay. Uh, so before we get started, there's a little bit of housekeeping. Mm. The housekeeping is, I remember the movie that we were talking about in the last episode. The movie with the, the dream sequence where, uh, that, that like in Raptor Red, there was this moment where... Uh, Raptor Red has this weird dactyl dream sequence and she like sees stuff. And then there's also this thing where the end of the book basically talks about how uh, this Raptor's genetics pass on. And it sort of tells the story of what happens in the future and all the things that lead up to the point where the Raptor that is discovered in the beginning of the book is discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie that I was referencing in, in terms of like <coughs> the movie I was referencing in terms of how it relates to that sequence was actually the Coen brothers film raising Arizona. It has uh, a couple of dream sequences, but the one I'm specifically talking about is the one at the end where uh, Nicholas Cage's character has a dream. That's a, a nice dream where everything works out for everybody involved in the story and everything, everything just ends nicely for everyone that the way he wants it to. And that's kind of how it felt. That's what I was remembering. So if you listen to that episode and was like, God, Doug's so stupid. Fear not. I wasted time in this episode, clarifying how not stupid I am. So I'm sure you feel like you've spent your time wisely. Thank you for listening. <laughs> um, okay. So I think that that brings us to starting Tarzan. Do you have any, do you have any housekeeping you'd like to bring up? I don't believe so. No. Okay. No, I don't. So, being that we're reading new books, yep, that means we're going to come to the edition edition of Death Readers. Uh, if, if this is your first time listening the, or to a book we're reading for the first time, the way we do the edition edition is Rob and I both look at the editions of the books that we have that we're reading, the, the, the versions, the volumes that we're reading from to which we do this episode. Uh, and we talk about them because we have value for books and value for how you get books. And we want you to know where you can get books if you don't know where to get them so you can read along. So Absolutely. number one is always your library. But let's start with the edition. edition. Rob, why don't you go first? Oh, okay, sure. Um, well, I know that written in the, ni- the 1912s, Tarzan would be in the public domain. So I wanted to get this book for free. Right. And I thought about going to Project Gutenberg, which is what I tried to say last time, but I said something like Gutenberg.com. And I felt like an idiot. It's Project Gutenberg, I think.org, where they list all sorts. There's a huge collection of books. Um, but first I tried my Apple Books app, 
where they had Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs, the, Uni- the University of Oxford text archive for free. Nice. So I just downloaded it, and it gave me a file that I can scroll. I don't have to do that that page turning thing. I can just do a top to bottom scroll all the way to the end. It's super easy. I can highlight things and make notes into my notes app to collect passages for excerpts. Oh, it's great. It's glorious. It's so awesome. And I didn't have to pay Amazon shit. Nice. What edition do you have? Well, I have the uh, first tour edition, July, 1999 uh, trade paperback. Um, it has a gorgeous illustrated cover by Daniel Horn, which I know you've seen, mm-hmm. uh, depicting Tarzan of the Apes himself fighting a uh, big lion in the jungle. Uh, and he's in his, you know, he's in like a cheetah loincloth or a leopard loincloth. And he's going to he's going to fight this big, scary uh, male lion. And oh, boy, does it looks it looks like it's full of action and energy. Um I think that's fair. I think that's a fair description, even of what I've read so far. Yeah, and he, um, he looks like he looks like he's dressed like a circus strongman in a way, which well, I'm that, not sure. I'm not sure which. I'm sure that came first. I'm sure sure circus strongman came before Tarzan. Oh, but yeah. Um. Still, it's a it's a cute little edition. I got mine because you know that's part of this. I picked mine up. I think for probably a quarter uh-huh. at a Goodwill. Oh. Uh, so if you if you want to buy a book. Mm-hmm. And you are, you know, not interested in just reading a book at the library. You like to collect books or something like that. I seriously, what I do is I just go maybe once a week if I'm lucky. If I'm if I'm feeling indulgent, I'll go to the Goodwill and I will troll the book section for the books that have the seventy five percent off sticker because mm. they're only like two or three bucks per book. So seventy five percent off gets you down to a quarter, two bits. Um, so. Uh, I, I pretty much exclusively look for that every time they get a new cycle of of coupons and or, or, or discount color codes. And uh, well, I found Tarzan a couple weeks ago and I was like, oh, wow, look at that. Mm, why not? A quarter? I, I'd buy that for a quarter. And I did. So uh, that's how I got mine. But again, uh, check your local library, check Hoopla, check Libby, uh, check Gutenberg Project uh, or Project Gutenberg, check... Check anywhere you can if you want to read a book for free first. We're in an age where we can be savvy enough not to pay for stuff. Legally. Not thieving. Legally. Like, you can legally do this. Uh, There's lots of social programs out there to help you get books. Um, Go get your books. And if you can, if you still want to buy a book and you don't want to take your chances at picking one up at a Goodwill or or a thrift store, go to, like, a used bookstore. Go to a secondhand bookstore and buy books. Oftentimes you can buy a book there and sell it back to them for a fraction of what you paid for it, but you'll get books out in the, in the world that people can also buy if they would like to. Because um, sometimes libraries are great, but sometimes they just don't have everything. Um, and it's in it's in bookstores' best interest to have everything. So anyway. You know what's interesting to me mm-hmm. is I know that sometime in the last 15 years I had a copy of Tarzan, and it was that exact same cover. And I don't have it anymore. So you could conceivably have my old copy. That's interesting. Did you do you drop yours off at Goodwills in town? Do you drop stuff off at Goodwills? Usually they go into our local used bookstore. Hmm. Um, but that could come back out and go back it into could. circulation. We might have just done a book drop at some point. My wife does occasionally do that kind of thing where she donates books to certain places. It's I'm saying possible. it's conceivable. It's unlikely. You can't prove but it's, it's not. conceivable. I'm going to assume it's not. Um, 
Basically, so, you've got my property and I want it back. Nope. My property now. I purchased it fair and square. I think the next thing, since we're done with the edition edition, thanks for listening mm-hmm. to the edition edition. We're going to start reading Tarzan, but I think this time I actually I actually kind of want to read the back of the book. Okay, or, cool. Or at least something from the back of the book. I, I don't have anything like that, so please. Um, the back of my book reads in its entirety this. I am Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. When Tarzan is orphaned as a baby deep in the African jungle, he is saved from certain death when he is adopted by a she-ape. Raised as one of their own, Tarzan learns the ways of Kerchak, the tribe of great apes who rule the jungle. They teach him how to survive, to hunt, to swing through the trees, and to communicate with the other animals of the jungle. By the time he is a young man, Tarzan has the courage and strength of ten men, but it is his human brain that allows him to become king of the apes and lord of the jungle. But when his jungle domain is disturbed by the arrival of, quote, civilized men, Tarzan begins to wonder about his true identity. So that, if you have never read Tarzan or unfamiliar with the concept of a property this popular and storied, that's Tarzan. That's the book we're reading. Um, the, the part that I really wanted to get to is this bit about the author. Okay. Because it's a part that really struck my attention. Okay. It reads like this. Edgar Rice Burroughs was a habitual failure and ne'er-do-well before he burst onto the scene with the publication of Tarzan of the Apes in 1912, the first in what would become one of the most entertaining adventures series ever written. And I thought, whoa. (laughs) Weird, uh, weird neg on the author? Like, oh, this asshole. Like, that's how it reads to me. It's like, Edgar Rice Burroughs, that asshole, that habitual <laughs> failure and ne'er-do-well? Yeah, I guess he wrote a book about a guy who taught himself to read at age 10. Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. I feel, Go ahead. Pick it up. I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about Edgar Rice Burroughs as this goes on. Yeah. <laughs> I've only done some cursory glances so far, but I'm like, oh, there's going to be some issues. Yeah. But we'll get to those. Well, um, speaking of getting to those, do you want to start the actual chapters? Let's do. All right. Uh, well, we, here we go. Beginning Tarzan. Uh, if you'd like to read along or, or listen along, go read the first uh, eight chapters and come back, start back up here and, and listen. So that brings us to chapter one, out to sea. All right. I have a note on the first sentence. Okay. So when I was in elementary school and we were learning about writing, one of the, and I'm sure everybody has this story, so pardon me for sounding like an idiot who has to explain normal stuff. We were taught, like, when you write a book or you write a story or whatever, your first sentence has to hook people. It's got to be a hook. It's got to get people to want to read more. Which always felt kind of, like, dumb to me. Like, I always thought, like, if someone's going to have already picked up, maybe purchased, and at least opened the book to start reading, who's the guy who reads the first sentence and goes, No! (laughs) No! Not me! This book isn't for me! That, ha- that did happen to me one time. So you're the guy. The Silmarillion, the densest first sentence I have ever read. And I was like, nope, I'm out. I am fucking out. This is not happening. Wow. I just, I'm not smart enough, I guess. That's right. I vowed that day I would never, ever read the Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. Not ever, not know how. 
I swore a blood oath. Oh, my senses are tingling. Oh, those senses are tingling. Um, I don't like that. I don't like that. All right. The first sentence of Tarzan of the Apes, though, and really it's the first paragraph, but I'll read the first sentence first, obviously. Sure. It goes like this. I had this story from one who had no business to tell it to me or to any other. I may credit the seductive influence of an old vintage upon the narrator for the beginning of it, and my own skeptical incredulity during the days that followed for the balance of the strange tale. I do not say the story is true, for I did not witness the happenings which it portrays, but the fact that the telling of it to you I have taken fictitious names for the principal characters quite sufficiently evidences the sincerity of my own belief that it may be true. So I fucking love that because it's like the Blair Witch Project. He's mm-hmm, basically mm-hmm. writing a book and he's like, this book's found footage. This book is, <laughs> this book's like Fargo. Yeah, it's a true story. Wink. It's, it is a story. That's uh. true. And, and like, and then he's, his, his evidence is like, listen, it's, but he's, he's better. It's like, he's, it's like, he's telling you a secret. Cause it's like, not only is it based on a true story, but he's also like, but bro, like I probably shouldn't even tell you this stuff. Like (laughs) people could get hurt if I told you. So like, you got to promise not to tell anybody else about this book that costs 499. Like, cause man, if anybody else got a hold of this stuff, it would be crazy. So I'm going to tell you on the down low, this nut story (laughs) that needs to keep quiet. Okay. Like that's, that's how this reads to me. It's so bizarre. It's so like. It's so like overly dramatic. Yeah. It, it's but it's it's just like it's it's like, you know it's just it's over the top. It's it's just too much. No I, quick, I love it. Quick question for you about Edgar Rice Burroughs' work. Have you read A Princess of Mars? I didn't think you had. I have not. But you seem quite taken with it in other when you see it represented. Why is that? Um I think I have a okay, how do I describe this? Cause, cause, because, oh, you, you like the movie. I really like the Disney movie. Is that, was, was that your first experience with it? I think so. Okay. But, okay. but that, I, that well, actually makes sense. I think to truth be told, I think I had experiences before that, that I didn't know were experiences. Okay. Like, uh, the, the John Carter property and the, the princess of Mars properties have been adapted to comic books for a long time. Mm hmm. And I'm fairly certain I had seen Dejah Thoris on many a splash covers sure, to okay, try to okay. sell like nearly nude drawings of women to adolescent men. Sure, sure. And I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to. I'm not being defensive. This is not I'm got saying, to journal, journal, journalism. No, I'm, I'm not being defensive. I'm saying like this is I. I if retros, in retrospect, I believe I saw that stuff not knowing what I was looking at. Gotcha. And then later realized, oh yeah, that must have been John Carter stuff. Um, um, I asked. Oh, go ahead. So, so, so my, but my first real experience with like even the character John Carter was definitely the 2012, 2011 uh, Disney film. Right. Which I think is a great movie. Um, I really like it. It's, it's got some clunkiness, but like, we can talk about that later when we get to, if we yeah. ever get to that book. But, but my point is like, the thing I mainly like about those books might have nothing to do with uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs as much as it is the, the aesthetic of the world he created, which has everything to do with him, but oh, sure, sure. Uh, it, more like I, I have a fondness for like uh, 
ray gun gothic themed things like if you think about like the 60s or the 30s space travel um imagery like -hmm. if you look at like the uh fritz lang movie uh woman on the moon or in the moon it's very or or like things to come these old movies uh that are about like these old sci-fi movies right they're all they all have this amazing aesthetics the the futurism yeah, the futurism in them is 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 very unique and specific and beautiful. Um, there, it, most notably for me, like one of the most notable things is in like Things to Come, uh, the the one of the protagonists or one of the people you follow in the movie ends up wearing this huge like spacesuit that has this enormous like uh, domed helmet that can like remove the front glass piece but still has this huge back plate that holds the glass in place mm-hmm. and it looks crazy it looks it looks nuts and and really cool or like you know the uh the the mars attacks martians like things like that that have this look of of this 30s and 40s idea of what space marvin the martian like that stuff came from this same era of sure. of sci-fi uh, i think woman in the moon like or or like uh, a trip to the moon even their concept of what a spaceship looked like literally is like a fucking bullet. It's just like you make a firing pin, like a, you make a, you know, and that's basically what rockets are. But right. like, you know, it, it's, but, it, but even more simplified to be just bullet. It's a bullet you, you can sh- ride. You shoot. Yeah. You, it's a bullet you could ride and you shoot the moon with it. Right. So like, there's all this, like these, these aesthetics and these shapes and these designs of the, accoutrement that accompany the people who are going to space travel that mm-hmm. I love and the and the princess of mars aesthetics and those things beautifully melds in my opinion the fantasy elements of someone like uh you know, you know fantasy artists mm-hmm. and also sci-fi aesthetics so you get this weird like like greco-roman style sci-fi mm-hmm. <laughs> like this this sure. this very like gladiatorial very uh leather strapped like barbarians but also on mars guys and then add on to that that it's also in a western mm-hmm. like it's just my fucking mind's into it like i'm like <laughs> yes put me in that world you're you're mixing like three or four genres into one thing and it i hear that it works right, fucking, right, right. yeah like sign me up it's like it's like I, I, we gotta stop talking about this because it's not this is not about this book but like it's like going to a buffet and being like, I'll have that and I'll have that and I'll have that. And then you like mix it all up and take a bite and you're like, yeah, yeah. Why <laughs> okay, am I wasting so time separating my food? The reason, Yes, we are. We are far and away from Tarzan. Right. Um, so your main question re- was reason why I asked, Rice Burroughs? The reason I asked was because I knew you were very into it and yet um, A Princess of Mars was on the list. And so – by virtue of being on the list, you hadn't read it. So I wasn't right. sure how you were familiar with it because I believe the, 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 the connecting tissue here. That's not Edgar Rice Burroughs um, is that I believe princess of Mars is also a story within the story kind of device, a yes, narrator saying, I'm telling the story to you, but it's not my story. Yeah. And that just, that I, I, just John Carter have survived this and these are my notes or whatever it is. Right. To like his right. nephew or something. Yeah, and some, his nephew's I, publishing I, I, it. I've already come back and I made it rich here in, in the States. Uh, right. But let me tell you about that time I killed people on Mars. Uh, right. 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 So, so yeah. there's, there's just a similar, uh, a similar, a similar thing, but I mean, it seems to work for him. And I'd be curious how often, however, can you think of any other, this. can you think of any other properties that he's written that are remotely popular? I, I, I I mean, he's got a, I, I, when I looked him up, he had 
series under right. his name, like the Tarzan series and the Barsoom series and like eight others that I didn't recognize. Wow. And so it wasn't just books. It was like whole series. And I'm like, damn, dude. But he's not the guy who created Conan, right? That was someone else. That was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I believe, right? No. No, no he that, did not. That's Sherlock Co- Holmes? Yes, that's Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Um, I have Worth to look it up, up, so give me yeah. a second. Yeah. <laughs> who will get there first? Robert E. Howard. Robert E. Howard. Okay. I get um, so it mixed yeah. up with Arthur Conan Doyle because Arthur Conan Doyle's middle name is Conan. Right. And all these fuckers had three names. Yeah. I can't find that selected works. Barsoom series, Tarzan series. Is the Barsoom series something I would recognize as a different thing? Is that the Warlord of Mars stuff? The bar- is Barsoom the is of, Mars. That's what is they John call Carter. the planet? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Princess of Mars, God of Mars, etc. Right. Tarzan Pelucider series at the Earth's core. Pelucider, Tanar of Pelucider, Tarzan at the Earth's core. So we got a crossover. Damn, v- the Venus series, Pirates of Venus. That title alone, I'm in. Dark Pirates of the Dark Water. Sure. <laughs> Caspak series, the Moon series, Mucker series, and then other science fiction, other jungle adventure novels, The Cave Girl, yeah. well, yeah. The Eternal Lover. All right, so nothing. Um, <laughs> Western novels, historical novels. The guy wouldn't stop fucking writing. So much for a failure. Yeah. Um. Anyway, more like a not failure, uh. more like habitual success. Yeah. Uh, okay. What's your note? My first note's on page four. Besides the first note I actually had, my next note is on page four. Mine's not till like nine and ten. So what's yours? Um, Let's clarify. This is the beginning of John Clayton and his wife, Alice, are having a big move to Africa from England. Uh, and, and we can get to why in a second, but this is their experiences on the boat with a whole bunch of swarthy cutthroats. I'm grateful that you provided that summation. However, my note has nothing to do with that. That's fine. That's fine. Um, I think at this point, you know, at, at this point in the book by page four, there's not really much going on. It's a lot of setting. But I think it's worth noting at this point, before we get too deep into this, uh, the writing style. Mm. Um. I'm kind. I I found myself captivated by it. I mm-hmm. I was. It, I I thought to myself, this is like reading English as English was intended to be read. Uh, the the grammar is perfect. The narrative is clear, and and I also feel disconnected from it because it's it's so good. It's so well written that I feel inadequate to even read it because my modern English is nowhere near as concise or precise. Sure. So. Uh, it's and, slightly it, old-fashioned without being completely Shakespearean or, or yes, Chaucer, it, it's, it's Chaucerian. antiquated by by some of the words he uses that don't necessarily need to be there or could be used. Well, there, there are better words for the thing he's describing. Even the syntax, though, is that is that. But it's still I I reading it. I know it's actually how English is supposed to be. Sure. So. For example, I just said supposed to be. I, I I'm missing things from that sentence. That sentence is bad. Like I know that. But I can't stop speaking this way. I'm a dumb American. Uh, and our public school systems are bad. I don't even have a better word than bad to describe things that I think are more complex than that. But because I'm a dumb American, I get stuck with words like bad. <laughs> Basically, what I'm saying is Americans are Tarzan. But instead of Africa, we got stranded in the New World. 
Yeah, I'm worried that that analogy is going to be more accurate than you know. We're savages. Like it's that's not I, what I'm talking about. But go ahead. Um. So, it also feels like in that reflection about how the writing is done, or, or how the how well it's written and how precisely it's written, it's it's also sort of. It makes me sad to think that a book that's 109 years old, like to be more fair, a 109 year old pulp adventure feels mm-hmm. like a breath of fresh air after a like essentially a lifetime of social media grammar swamps. <laughs> I love social media grammar swamps. That's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 awful to think about the. English is alive, right? So social media is essentially killing English mm-hmm. or, or probably all languages, but we speak English. So that's the one that's killing. That's the one I can observe it killing. And it just feels like you're, you're, and I'm guilty of it too, but like observing the decline of a language in the sense that it's no longer being used deftly. It's no longer being used uh, precisely, it's no longer being used uh, elegantly. It's being mm-hmm. used like a cudgel. It's being used like, I gotta get from point A to point B as quickly as possible and with the most force required or the most force I can possibly muster so I might as well beat everyone I speak to with verbal sticks. If I say it first and fastest, I'm the winner. Right. Uh, and and shortest. So, you know, like, yeah. fastest, shortest, yeah. Um. There's that line in the office where where the character of Kevin says that thing where he, he decides that he's wasting time speaking uh, speaking English well even as well as he could so instead he just starts breaking it down like into Tarzan language and he starts his argument when someone says why are you doing that he says he says why like I think he says something like why what problem why use big uh, why why use many word when few word do trick <laughs> that does sound amusing I should maybe watch this office. Yeah. Um, and and so like I think that that's you know a pretty good example of what's actually happening. That's what makes the show so great is it's really well written. Um, anyway, so I I had this conscious acknowledgement of th- the reading of this book being sort of uh transportive to a place where I felt like ah yes English here it is I am reading it for the first time like <laughs> why why am I so disconnected from this thing that feels so familiar and so right did you have any experience like that while reading oh absolutely I, I didn't have anything specifically articulated but I have a couple of excerpts that will I think clearly show the Edgar Rice Burroughs writing style and how it's it's just I like your word antiquated because I keep wanting to say archaic and that's not the word I want to use, but it's antiquated enough that keeps me on my toes, but it's never so much that I feel myself disengaging. Right. Um, it does take a cup. It takes a, a little bit of nimble reading. To Sometimes be I read out loud just for the fun right. of it, but also to help uh, cement the uh, experience. <laughs> last night I read the last two chapters aloud to my wife and my dogs and uh, nice. just because I was like, I, I want to spend time with you, but I have to get this done. So how about I just read to you? And she was like, she's a, such a amazing partner. She was like, okay. And I was <laughs> like, all right, here goes. And then it was just like two chapters of like, 
Tarzan ties a rope. <laughs> it's just like, let's talk about how Tarzan learns to teaches himself to read and ties a rope. And I was like, oh, this poor woman. She's going to have to listen to this. And, and just she's just grinning and smiling along and just being like, I love you. I'm just glad I get to spend this time with you. Uh, I also, at this point... It's a bit of a it's a bit of a tangent, so pardon me. It's probably going to be a long episode, uh, but it's very hard for me to hear the name Edgar Rice Burroughs to say it to read it without thinking about how great it would be to write a or or, or write and direct a skit about Edgar Wright Burroughs. So you take like Tarzan and you put him at the world's end or something. Or like you take you take John Carter and he has to you know drive John Ham around real fast while listening to Martian music or something. Jesus, I wasn't getting it. Okay, you weren't getting yes. it. You weren't. No, I'm like Edgar Wright because I was thinking like Wright like an author, not Edgar Wright Burroughs. Now I'm with you, and yes, it's amazing. <laughs> Every time I read it, I think Edgar Wright Burroughs, and I think I just imagine a new little thing. Tar- Tars John of the Dead. Yes, exactly. Um. <laughs> now let's be clear let's go get Kala walk to the cabin lock the doors and wait for this whole thing to blow over <laughs> apes can't look up <laughs> yeah oh, Big Al <laughs> he says apes can't look up what do you mean apes can't look up of course they can look up no they can't <laughs> he has the hu- the thunder stick hanging over the, the bar at the Winchester mm-hmm. anyway it's too much it's too fucking much um, so like that's what I get. That's what I get into. So I have tried in my notes to assuage this illness I have to just calling him Burroughs because then I remove the Edgar Wright, Edgar Rice part of it and just get Burroughs. That's fine. I like I like the uh, majesty with which you, you, you say Burroughs. I was just calling him ERB. Herb. Herb. Um, yeah, I... Uh, so I'm not. You call him whatever you want. We'll know who we're talking about. But I am not going to refer to him by his three-part uh, Mark David Chapman name. I'm going okay. to go with um, <laughs> with just Burroughs as much as I can. Okay. Uh, my next notes on page eight. Um, I'm assuming we have different length pages. Probably, probably. So mine, mine, mine. My first note, my first two notes, really, are about why John was being sent. And I tried to find it again because I didn't write the details down of the first one, unfortunately. But it was the the the, the small and, and it has probably a lot to do with the language. But the small sentence they used to describe why he was being sent seemed interesting enough to fill its own book. What was that sentence? That's what I don't have. Son of a bitch. Man, if you're gonna reference a sentence that grand. <sighs> Should probably have the sentence. It's fine. Ready. It's fine. Hold on. We'll just wait and cut all this out later. Okay. Probably two sentences. Maybe three. <laughs> John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, was commissioned to make a peculiarly delicate investigation of conditions in British West Coast African colony from whose simple native inhabitants another European power was known to be recruiting soldiers for its native army, which it used solely for the forcible collection of rubber and ivory from the savage tribes along the Congo and the Aruwimi. 
The natives of the British colony complained that many of their young men were enticed away through the medium of fair and glowing promises, but that few, if ever, returned to their family. Or few, if any, ever returned to their family. The Englishmen in Africa went further, saying that these poor blacks were held in virtual slavery since after their terms of enlistment expired, their ignorance was imposed upon them by their white officers, and they were told that they had yet several years to serve. Oh, yeah, that was a really powerful sentence. Couple or of them. Se- several. Sure. Yeah, that, but yeah. but but it's. I'm like, this is an entire novel. I would. What is this novel? I would read that. This is amazing. Um, nope. Barely backstory, and then we're in it. It is, however, what you're describing is world building. Oh, absolutely. Like, he, it's it's masterfully done. Yeah, and, and arguably, I mean, that's my problem. That fucking might be true. That might really have happened. I mean, everything I know about humanity says it did. Like, mm-hmm. it's no reason. I have more reason to assume it did than it didn't. Absolutely, um, absolutely. So, uh, and 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 my uh, pardon my ignorance if you're listening and you know exact moments when that happened in history and 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 know how awful it was for real. Please forgive me for not knowing. Um, yeah, it was. That was a good one. And the follow-up would be um, another backstory about, and it just I just found it very interesting about what his, well, actually what both he and Alice's families had to say about them traveling and moving to Africa, just up and moving for, you know, a projected five to ten years. Uh, there were mothers and brothers and sisters and aunts and cousins to express various opinions on the subject, but as to what they severally advised, history is silent. God, he's so again, like you said, good at writing. It's concise. <laughs> it says a whole bunch, and it makes me go, "What the hell did they say?" And, and ERB is like, "Nope, we're moving on." Yeah, but he, he, it's also kind of like it's also kind of a kick in the chest too. You're like, "Ugh, history says nothing." Oh, it's so yeah. powerful. My uh, my next note's on page eight still. Okay. So my note here is basically uh, knowing that this is a story about a man who's raised by apes made me worry that we were about to read 270 pages of dr- of Burroughs' dry but effective prose without much dialogue. Because up to this point, eight pages in for me, that's what it was. It was there was no dialogue. It was just heavy descriptions, well written and you know illustrative, but. That's that's a hard that's like what I'm afraid Tolkien's like. Right. And so it at this point on page eight we finally get dialogue. And it wasn't just dialogue. It was <laughs> it was accent heavy dialogue. Um he he the basically the first conversation we see in the story is this old cockney like sh- deckhand talking to uh the the Greystokes about the mutiny that's about to happen and the, the cockney is thick and it, or, or whatever you want to call it, whatever like sure. that. Cause as I know that it's like champagne, it has to be a very specific area to be real cockney, but like, I don't have a better word for that kind of, uh, slang or that kind of like accent, whatever, whatever Eliza Doolittle's dad has, <laughs> this dude has. You're saying this guy's getting married in the morning. Yeah. He's got to get to the ship on time. Um, the, uh, and, and the other thing about it that really struck me is in terms of a writing note is that I forget what it's called. Cause I'm not that I'm not as educated as I should be, or, or my memory is not as good as I'd like it to be, but I know there's a thing in writing where you, it has a specific name. It's like a technique where you, you accentuate your story by writing characters with specific accents. Mm-hmm. 
And that that adds to the world building. That adds to the immersion because you're giving it a locality. You're you're not just saying this takes place with English people. You're saying this takes place with English people. You don't believe me? Listen to how this guy talks. And you you put it in there. Um, I know I'm pretty sure that was a thing that was a big deal in like the Harlem Renaissance, where like mm-hmm. there was a lot of like novels and writings done with this specific like affectation of language that was specific to this culture at this time in this place. This has that. And so for him in 1912 to be alert enough to know I need to do that spoke to me in terms of like, oh, this is going to be written not well in terms of not just well because of his ability to describe situations and keep them short and concise and tight. But also he knows how to do character work. And that's that's for me, it was like a huge sigh of relief. I was like, oh, great. Like. I could relax and enjoy this, not knowing it's not just going to be a huge amount of uh, Britannica-esque text right, right, right. describing historical events as like succinctly as possible. Um, so yeah, I kudos. I, I I was very happy to see that as we walked into the book. So, like you said, there's a mutiny uh, or a planned mutiny because the captain is a dick, and uh, he's a oh, nearly a murderous dick. Oh yeah, he he tried to kill a man for bumping into him, right. and 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 pull out his gun, and John shoved him at the last second, uh, causing this large man to be shot in the leg, I believe, instead of you know dying. One of my favorite parts of this chapter, I think it was this chapter, is that when he I don't have the line pulled up, but I remember part of I remember the part of it that's like awesome. When describing the crew, he basically says that they are made up of, uh. It's something like barely seaworthy ne'er-do-wells and the unhanged. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what the fuck? You can't just say that. That's, that's, there's so much in those words. Like there's so much context and so much uh, value in terms of me understanding the world I'm in. It, it's, it's illuminating. It, it's fantastic. Um, like you could, you could say criminals, but like, the unhanged. It, it's like a fucking punk band name. It's like saying like, like it's like saying you deserve to be dead, but you've escaped. That's some like like uh, James Franco first time shit. Like that's <laughs> it's it's so good. Anyway, you were describing where we're leaving the chapter. No, it's pretty. I think that's that's about it because the next chapter gets into the mutiny itself. Yeah, I mean at this point. The Greystokes or Greystokes are you can call them the Claytons. That's their name. I, I thought that was their names, but I thought that was also his first name or something. Is, no, is no, his no, name no. John? John Clayton. Ugh, it's so that many it's names. that whole it's that whole British lording thing that used to throw me when I read Dracula because Arthur Holmwood becomes Lord Godalming. It's a title thing. I don't know much more than that. Okay, so the Claytons hmm. at this point have been alerted to a mutiny. Tried to alert the the stupid asshole captain who rejected their help. Just um, because it couldn't, he just, it, it's lies. Right. Just bold-faced, it, like, it, no! It, it's one of those conceits, like, I, I other than the fact that, that John showed him up by not letting him murder, outright murder one of his crew. Right. It, it seems like one of those things where he's being obstructive just to be the obstructive villain. Right. In the story. Because I, I, I can't imagine a person would do that outright. But maybe. Maybe. I have a hard time imagining a lot of stupid. But as part and parcel to the mutiny, uh, 
John's rifles and revolvers have been stolen from their luggage compartments. Mm-hmm. And a note is slipped under their uh, cab, their cabin, cabin door. Call it? We'll call it cabin, their cabin door, door uh, letting them know that if they prefer to remain alive through this mutiny, they should keep quiet and stay in their bunks. Mm-hmm. So they basically do until they hear mutiny guns. Sounds. And that's that's the end of the chapter. Yep, I think. So then that brings us to chapter two, the savage home. My first notes on page nineteen. Uh, mine's on page my page twenty, and it's a uh, it's actually a passage, okay, from uh, John watching the mutiny. So if yours is before that, uh, my I'll just say, yeah, I think mine's probably before that. Um, okay, <clears throat> honestly, I have no idea, but it's it's just simple. Uh, there's a passage where Lady Greystoke says she wishes she could be a man and think with logic instead of her own womanly uh, heart over her brain. Yeah, and I thought that like, well, clearly this doesn't jive with modern femininity, but I wonder. If English ladies embraced those roles at the time, and and by ladies I don't, I I mean female equivalent of lords, not just women. No, I understand. I, I, um, I think and, there was. And, go ahead. And what I mean is like I, I I imagine there's a wide variety of experiences, like as there is with everything. But I guess what I was really wondering is I'm curious about the life of the woman who wants that experience. I'm curious about the life of the woman who wants to be the kept lady, who. Is, Le- leans like, into the frail femininity. Yeah, leans into this idea that, like, wait a minute, I get a lot of benefit from being pampered here. I mean, there are anti-feminist women today who think. Well, that, but is that is that necessarily being anti-feminist to to say? I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying right. there. It, it's it seems like the antithesis of what would be the obvious way forward. Kind of. I I, I mean. I feel like, yeah, I'm sure there were women who who leaned into this attitude. But then again, this is written by a man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I and I also, but I wonder if he's intending to suggest that about her character in this moment. If he's intending to suggest that she is a person who is actively, think... actively actually being okay with her position or actually lamenting, wishing she wasn't stuck in her position and is expressing that in the way of describing she wishes she was as smarter as a man. I don't think it's that deep. I feel like there's there's definitely a more... Well, you know how the ladies are. The men have to protect them. And that's as far as I, Edgar Rice Burroughs, is going, am going to write, delve into this right. character. Right. Because I've got, I've got, you know, ape men to get to. Why am I going right. to write about ladies? Who wants to read about ladies? Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, so I, I assume there's actually books out there that would, and, and stories that would cater to my interest in this moment, but I don't know of them, and maybe someday I'll get to them. Fair enough. But, uh, anyway, uh, that's all I have for this chapter, so you're, it's all you now. Okay, so this, this perfectly encapsulates everything, including, I feel, John Clayton's Britishness. Before the officers had taken a dozen backward steps, the men were upon them. An axe in the hands of a burly negro cleft the captain from forehead to chin, and an instant later the others were down, dead or wounded from dozens of blows and bullet wounds. Short and grisly had been the work of the mutineers of the Fualda, and through it all John Clayton had stood leaning carelessly beside the companionway, puffing meditatively upon his pipe, as though he had been but watching an indifferent cricket match. (laughs) So, we get tastes of the racial superiority that I feel is going to infuse this work. 
but I'm not ready to. I, I I've read that people have said that. I'm 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 waiting for Edgar Rice Burroughs to make his own case. Yeah, but I I feel like it's coming. I feel like it's coming. Yeah, um, I, I, that's I, I, not I drew, that's let, not let, specifically let, what I'm talking about at the moment. There, there's the oddness of John Clayton. Like I tried to warn you, so fuck you. I'm just gonna wash my pipe as you you know get an axe through your face. Right. Um. And it 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 it, it just seemed. I don't know. It's bizarre, and oh, and 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 and, and okay. Here is also with the uh, smoking his pipe and, and watching an indifferent cricket match. We start to get this anglophilia that Egress uh, Bros has, where it sounds like he's all about the you know proper the heart of an Englishman and yeah, Queen and country, and I say proper Englishness. Dude was born in Chicago. Oh really? Yeah. Awesome. And I'm just like, wow. I'm very fascinated about. Well, where this. did he grow up? I feel like all over America. I feel like he's American, oh. through and through. I don't know. Yeah, it's. Um... <clears throat> but yeah, that was that was just a, a great. Just, that was this chapter in a nutshell. Other than, it ends with. They are put off on the coast. So, so in terms of uh, just how I'm approaching the racial issue of the book, sure. Um, which at this point, at this point in the story, has barely popped up. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the best, I think the best way we can describe it as has popped up in an antiquated term for people. Sure. That at the time was was totally just okay. The way you referred to that, the person you were describing. Yes. Um. I, so in that sense, at this point, I'm treating it like uh, in, in with the uh, with the Twainian gloves of this. These words might be used, and if it's just if it's being kept to this sort of thing, and there's interesting context around it, we'll approach that context. But clearly, there's reason to uh, have to keep a keen eye out. Yes, I think that's fair. A weather okay. eye. Since there, we're talking about uh, semen. Yes, we are. As Billy Bones said to Jim Hawkins, "Keep a weather eye out for a seafaring man with one leg." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did uh, Billy Bones only have one eye? Uh, no, but he had a weather eye. See, that would be clever, though, if he had like a if he had an eye patch. Like, well, but keep he, an he, eye he's... out. Yeah, but see, then he was going to be given the black spot by Blind Pew, and then you would have that. That's that's three eyes that don't work. Okay, so uh, do you have any more notes on that chapter? Well, I think we should just quickly summate that the mutineers allow the Claytons to keep their lives and their possessions because they don't want to be caught with their belongings, and they put them off on the coast of Africa and like go make a life. We promise we'll tell people where you are. Right, and now they're. A lost in the jungle. Yeah, I want to note. I actually thought that the idea of the the crew being like, listen, if we got caught with a lot of these possessions and tried to sell them, we would have marks on us. It would be obvious what we were doing and who right. and what had happened. So it's in our best interest to take as little as we can for ourselves and just leave it with you guys. It's garbage to us anyway. Um, but we're not going to kill you because you saved that one guy's life. Black Michael. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, John saved Black Michael's life. He, he let him only get shot by the captain in the leg, 
um, or his his actions resulted in only him get him getting only shot in the leg. Mm-hmm. And uh, Black Michael was, tr- was returning the favor by not letting the crew kill them. Yep. Um, arguably just killing them slowly, but whatever. Um, so yeah, that's where we leave the that chapter, and then that brings us to chapter three: life and death. I think I just have overviews. Sure, and pretty much is overviews. It's the building of the treehouse, right? Uh, putting it all together. Not a lot of um, uh, that realistic, you know, cinema verite approach that that we have a lot nowadays. Is like how how is this realistic? It's like nope. John had to build a treehouse for his wife. He had to go out and get food. They did that. That was their life now. Months past. Yeah, I, I described this book to my wife as it's like, it's like a handful of tiny little adventures <laughs> so far that are all happening in, in compact moments Yeah, that are stacked into each other to like, I, I said, it's like, so far, this is like, <laughs> I know Rob loves origin stories <laughs> and being that this is Tarzan's first book, this book is essentially Tarzan's origin story, but the this section we're reading is also like the origin stories of Tarzan's origin stories. Like the, this chapters one through eight so far are basically the young Indiana Jones of Tarzan. Yeah. It's it's all these previous adventures that lead up to him actually becoming the adult heroic pulpy adventure hero Tarzan later, which we haven't by the end of these, these chapters we haven't gotten to not really. Um, I think we're pretty close, but we're not there. Sure. Um, and, uh, so in this one, yeah, they, they, the great apes attack the, the house. Uh, Alice gives birth to Tarzan and then promptly dies. Oh, no. Go ahead. No, she doesn't. She lives for a year. Promptly nurse... in page terms. Like she, she dies like within very little space. Oh, oh, oh yes. Page. Okay. Okay. She doesn't like, give birth and dies though. She, she lives for, she lives for a year. Uh, but mentally broken, thinking they're still back in London, not understanding that they're in the jungle. And then after a year, just dies. Well, to be fair to her, she suckles her babe for a year. Well, he suckles her. I think the process of allowing someone to suckle is still called suckling. Okay. I think. I don't fucking know, but I'm pretty sure that's what it means. Like a, a, uh, You're fair. You're, you're right. Nurses? She nurses her son for a year? Which is important. I think that's that's one of those things I've, I've noticed in this, like the structure of how he builds this narrative oftentimes seems to have very convenient time things in it. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it just so happens that this infant babe was allowed to survive for a year, at which point it's developed enough to not just instantly die but right. when its parents are dead uh, as it's being taken care of by a, uh, a she-ape. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, it, it, stuff like that keeps happening. These little, and we'll get there, but these little tiny things that, like, are, oh, that's kind of convenient. Um, so, yeah, that's mostly what happens in this in this chapter. My only real note about it that I took note on is at this point in the chapter, they mentioned that John Clayton keeps his diary in French. Mm-hmm. Specifically in French. Yeah. Um, and This it, will be a plot point later, I remember from the uh, reading it. Okay, I, w- I, I I have a note that says, is there a significance here that I'm missing? And I, and I it's it definitely feels like this is foreshadowing. Like, you know. Foreshadowing I'm not even sure about, but there's definitely, it comes into play. Okay. Well, 
I'm smart because I noticed it. Um, Good job. Yeah. <laughs> um, take that, I, boss Didem. I think I think it might be as 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 Tarzan learns to read the way he learns to read in the following chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can't find the diary and learn his own story. Mm. But it will be eventually revealed to him. All right. Okay. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about this chapter? Um, just that I was a little confused at the end when after Alice died, John laid down and didn't move. And I'm like, so did John die? But then we find out he didn't. He was just super depressed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then that brings us to chapter four, the apes. Uh, I have an overview again. Go for it. Uh, basically, in this chapter, the king apes rampage results in the death of the baby of a baby ape. Uh, the apes then storm the Greystoke cabin and kill Clayton, or mm-hmm. kill John. Kala, the uh, mother ape whose baby just died, exchanges her dead child for the white baby in the cribs. Mm-hmm. The crib. Uh, the king ape discovers the rifle, accidentally fires it, and then abandons it. Yep. So the, the, to to flesh it out a little bit more, uh, John had defended the cabin against the apes with the gun, which I think they call a thunderstick, not to be confused with a boomstick or death stick, and, something like that. Or yeah. Um, which well, you boomsticks don't want to buy. From, from Army of Darkness and Death Sticks from the Clone Wars. So, right. or Attack of the Clones. Um, but Thunderstick is Tarzan. Okay. So, he, uh, uh, they recognize it is a powerful tool that's scary, and they basically want to go get it. So, when they walk into the house silently and see John prone and, and vulnerable, they just murder him or kill him instantly, find the the thunder stick and take it outside and promptly fire it into a crowd of apes. Um, so and are immediately uh, freaked out. Cause it's way too loud, way too close. Yeah. And they're like, F this shit. And then they basically, they, they, he writes in there's something like they kind of figure out that if you just leave it alone, it won't blow up at you. And it's like, all right. Also the, the one little plot point though, is as he's, as he's exiting the building, the structure, uh, the rifle catches on the door and pulls it cl- close behind him. So they can't get back in to right. fuck with shit. And that's why that yeah. uh, little cabin is preserved. Lo, the many years later. Right. Um, all right. That's all I got. You got anything else? Nope. It's a bridge chapter. Well, that brings us That brings us to... Chapter 5, The White Ape. Uh, page 39 is my note. Uh, let's see. Mine's 44. It's basically... Just, I'm not sure we had really properly established that the apes could talk and would be represented as talking with dialogue yet, but this is where you still, you really start to go, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. Right. Um, yeah, that that's sort of where my note picks up. Not exactly, but it, my, my note here is that, uh, that the names and the words Burroughs uses for the apes and their translations... Uh, th- I want to make sure that those are all fictitious and I don't I make sure I want to I guess what I mean is I want to put out there that I am not convinced that these are these must be a fictitious language because and that's sort of where my problem comes into it is that I tried googling some of the words that he had given definitions to mm-hmm. like two balt means broken nose or something right. like that I googled it and it just was like oh you mean the Tarzan character and I'm like Mm. <laughs> yeah, but that means that this is just fake, which is fine. But at this point in time, it sort of occurs to me that, like, if these are fictitious words that he's assigning names to in ape language, then 
what is he using as his creative inspiration for the way those words sh- are shaped and sound? Like like Darth Vader was Dark Father. Right. So is he using some sort of, of, of an actual African language mm-hmm. or is he using a like Anglophile jingoistic impression of a an African language that therein becomes kind of insulting or, or insensitive or just a product of the time. But still, like, I feel it's probably that one. But even so, where this is not Lovecraft levels of <laughs> of uh, purposeful racism yet. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just my guess. But I think it's I think that's just that thing that people did where they, you know, mocked what things sounded like to convey that oh, we do it now too. Aesthetic. We still, we still do oh, it. Oh no, no, it's no! We're like... enlightened now, and it's all better. <laughs> no, not at no, all. No. Um, <laughs> like, okay, they literally. Okay, so so <laughs> they uh, they call the language that the terrorists are from in Team America: World Police Durka Durkistan. Yeah, <laughs> I thought they were making a point. They're kind of making a point, but by making that point, they're doing it in a way that is no better than the point they're making. No, no. I mean, and that was that was my character guy who defends Team right, America. Right, right. Uh, God, I don't believe cool. that. I mean, it's just it's my my point. Whether or not you believe whatever, it's it's happening. Yes. It still happens. That movie's like fifteen years old, but it's still happening. It's yes. still um a bit much, and. uh and, and there's other ways that should have been antiquated a long time ago. That thing that Colbert got in trouble for, um, his his Asian character, right? Um, that uh, is it, it, the whole point of that character was I'm making fun. I think if I remember correctly, was I'm making fun of this thing people do where they over characterize people of of other nationalities in an offensive way, and it just it was so smack dab just that thing mm-hmm. that it did it, it like lost all the sardonic credit it could have had for its its context it just became like yeah dude but like how many times (laughs) how many times are you gonna say the n-word without being racist right or something like like it's just like maybe just don't maybe just don't do it it might be simpler um i I when i said being racist i had that in quotes nobody could see that but like uh i i feel like you were right i feel like this is that's uh imperialistic attitude but again classic chicago imperialism right that's so odd now you got me wondering if he grew up somewhere else i'm gonna google that really quick okay because a lot of times people like like people say oh i was born somewhere and then you're like yeah but you grew like isn't mitt romney mexican maybe pretty sure mitt romney's famously born in mexico biography in chicago lived Lived for many years in the suburb of Oak Park. Oak Park, where is that Chicago? Still? I feel like it's. I feel like since he didn't move, that yeah. I mean, there's a here. Okay, there's a link. Hold on, Oak Park, Illinois, ah, which is Chicago. the sh- suburb of Chicago. Excellent. <laughs> uh, businessman, Civil War veteran. No, his he was sorry, son of a Civil War be- veteran. Paternal line. Don't care Here we are in Oak Park. Educated number of local schools. I think you answered it, man. 
Oh, you didn't want me to keep going? I mean, you tell me when you're ready, but like, I feel like he's there. During the Chicago influenza epidemic of 1891, spent half a year at his brother's ranch in Raft River, Idaho as a cowboy. Ooh. Snake River Gold Dredge. Oregon Short Line Railroad. So, I mean, basically, he was on the Mark Twain journeyman education system. Habitual failure. But... And I'm sure, I'm sure it gave him a view of the world, but it sounded like he really dug that whole English aesthetic. Yeah. Well, anyway. All I got left is an overview. Go for it. Um, I, I There's another moment in this chapter I want to talk about because it's one of the bigger takeaways from this moment <clears throat> or this part of the book. There's this the scene before the, the lion attack. Um. Burroughs uses Tarzan's resentment of his own physical features as an example of our society's artificial constructed uh, ideal body images or ideal the ideal of body image. If a handsome man was raised to believe apes were the peak of beauty, then he'd certainly resent his own appearance because it wouldn't conform. Right. I can't tell if this is sort of like transcendentally woke of Burroughs. <laughs> Or simply a way to humanize Tarzan by giving him the chance to confront the universally, like, relatable experience of loathing your body image if it doesn't meet standards. Uh, Again, just because of what I've read so far, I feel like that might be more complex than is warranted. I I I think if he had progressed along that line of thought, he would have got there. But it was more just what you said. It was like... Oh, this guy was raised among the apes, so he thinks that's pretty and he's ugly. Next, moving on. Right. I I guess what I'm saying is, yes, that's... I I don't think he's woke, per se, is all I'm saying. Sure, but I guess what I'm... Okay, fair enough. But I do think that this is a moment where you could take this as a... The the, the point about being transcendentally woke is that he didn't intend it. Maybe, Uh, maybe, like... It's inadvertently. Maybe that's a better word. Like, I I was using... Transcendentally is probably not the right word. Inadvertently woke might be more accurate uh, because I think it does seem like he kind of stumbled into like a profound comment or, or insight. Truism. That, yeah. That, that we're, it's becoming stuff like that's becoming more commonplace, more uh, normal, widely accepted shit like that. than it maybe was 109 years ago. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I liked that part. Because it, it's one of, again, talk about him being a good writer. Mm-hmm. This is a, this kind of humanizing moment is something that's a choice when you're writing. Mm-hmm. So making the choice to include a scene like this in a sequence like this is pretty, like, awesome. Like, it's it's really, it's really interesting. It's not just like, we're going from murder scene to murder scene or action to action. There's this weird, like, uh, narcissist moment. Like where, uh, he, that's the right one, right? Um, you think so? Yeah, yeah. Right. He, 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 you know, gazes upon his reflection in a in a pool and goes, ugh. I mean, Tarzan goes, ugh. Narcissus is like, yay. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so like, yeah, I just thought, I liked it. I just thought that was really cool. That's all I got for that chapter. Okay. Uh, but I guess okay, to summarize, uh, I, I, from what I remember, Tarzan 
essentially starts to swim. He swims for the first time, or like the first time they they acknowledge he knows how to swim, and they talk about this whole body image thing, as I just mentioned. But uh, even to the point where he talks about like how he wanted to look like an ape, like again, mm-hmm. so like mimicking what the ideal body image is, and trying really hard. And but again, like his weird, weirdly body positive thing of like being like, no matter how hard he tried, he had to learn to accept his own body, even though his body is peak human perfection. Because he was comparing it to inhuman standards, he could never achieve it. So again, like this weirdly inadvertently woke idea about body image that's powerful and correct. Um, even to the point where he describes having like caked mud on his skin so that he could look more like the apes, but it just dried and flaked off and it was never permanent. And so he like has to come to terms with, I guess I'm out of tricks. Like I have to accept who I am. Um and he goes, so he goes swimming and then decides he likes swimming every day, even though the apes don't like swimming. And so, again, you, you start to develop these uh, deviations from his norms, his his social norms in his uh, his in-group, the the apes, that he is like an outlier. He's like, he's like different. He's deviant in these different ways. And we as humans might think that those ways are totally normal, but that's sort of the brilliance of this story is in being like, no, but they're not, they're not that normal, (laughs) not with apes. Uh, But the reason Tarzan goes swimming is because the, the lioness whose name I've forgotten. Sabor. uh, Sabor uh, tries to kill him and eat him and ends up attacking or only getting one of the other apes as the other ape and Tarzan were kneeling to drink by the pool uh, of water that they, the watering hole they drink from. So, uh, I don't remember exactly what else happens in that chapter, but that happens probably for pretty important for later to establish that the, the Sabor is a, a lioness that killed, kills apes and tries to kill Tarzan. She's a nemesis of his. Do you have any more notes on that chapter? I do not. Then that brings us to chapter six, jungle battles. I have page 58. Go for it. I really like the violence in this chapter. The, it's a the, really the, violent the excite- chapter. The excitement in this story, but I do think that... Burroughs is overselling uh, Tarzan's wounds, and so so here, I want to describe the wounds for please, the listeners please so do, that they please can do. understand uh, what happened. At this point, Tarzan has gets he he gets in a fight with a gorilla, His, uh, which is an interesting distinction between the apes and gorillas that I thought was an, a noteworthy thing to think about because they don't describe the apes that he lives with as gorillas, but in almost every. Uh, film rendition of Tarzan the apes he lives with are gorillas they're not chimpanzees they're not orangutans they are gorillas that's an interesting note just for the the text version that the thing this it's it, the actually these things he's fighting are bigger scarier gorillas um not with the people he lives with or the apes he lives with and I think at this point he'd already found his way to crack into the cabin. Mm-hmm. So he had yeah, he's already been in the cabin. So he he found his way back to his family's cabin, not realizing what it was, not realizing how it relates to him. But he broke in, found some things, found a knife, and took the knife with him. And then he gets attacked by an ape. And in the fight with the ape, a he gorilla. Mind, at this a point, gorilla. a gorilla. Excuse me. He gets in a fight with a gorilla. At this point in time, Tarzan is only ten years old. Right. So a ten-year-old boy fending his fending himself off against a silverback gorilla. And he, arguably Silverback, I assume it was, he ends up killing the gorilla with the knife, but not before he sustains nearly mortal wounds. And then when I say nearly mortal, I mean, like, they should have been mortal wounds. <laughs> like, the way they're described, this 10-year-old boy should be dead. Edgar Rice Burroughs likes blood, and he likes so, writing so, about it. So I, the note I took was that we're supposed to believe a 10-year-old boy could survive a gorilla mauling that exposed his jugular vein, not 
cut it, not made it bleed. But the way it's written is exposed. It's pretty hardcore. Like that's not that's not close enough to not ruptured for my taste. <laughs> it exposed his it ripped flesh from his abdomen and exposed his rib cage, including the broken ribs that he sustained. Yep. And he nearly severed his own arm from a bite, like a this gorilla took of the kid's arms. Keep in mind, a ten-year-old kid's pretty small, so it's not like I can't believe that this would happen. I like I might be able to believe a gorilla could bite a kid's arm off. Why not? What I have trouble believing, and maybe this is just an exposure of Edgar Rice Burroughs not understanding medicine at all. All those things. And this kid manages to survive with no paralysis or disability because of these wounds into adulthood, into like the peak of physical perfection, human physical perfection, with no more medical assistance than gorilla spit and time in a bug infested jungle. Like, dude, (laughs) he did get a fever. There's a lot of things I can believe. It might be an old-timey version of talking about wounds. Like, even uh, my mom, when she cuts herself chopping vegetables, she'll say something like, Oh, I sliced a chunk off my finger. And she means she nicked it. Right. She doesn't mean she took the tip off. Right. Um, So, yeah, I think we could just extrapolate that people stub their toe and they're like, I lost my leg! I think... I I hear what you're saying. (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. I think that he's... I mean... (laughs) Judging by the way they describe violence later. That's true. Well, even earlier, dude, that man got this... an axe in his face. Right, right. It cleft his head in two. I'm like, Jesus. I mean, if you're going to cleft somebody's head, just do it in twain. Yeah. Don't don't tell me it's in two. Say twain. Just throw it in there. He might have. Thrice, <laughs> thrice the heavy axe blade fell upon his neck. Hack after hack, leaving not but a, a small thread of flesh con- uh, continuing to connect the head from the neck that's that shit that's that dark shit you want to read that's that like that's that like uh, escargot of violence you want to get into <laughs> do you think nearly no, headless thick, nick came from Edgar Rice Burroughs novel thick jets of blood spurt from the opening Gouts. once once formerly uh, thundered the bellowings of his voice like you want to hear shit like that like you're like oh fuck <laughs> gurgles and spats uh erupt from the wound as his lungs fill with his own blood yeah that's fucked up <laughs> like give me more but also it's a baby like it's a 10 year old kid i don't i don't actually want to read that like, <laughs> and and it's also like it's just too much like if you told me that like adult tarzan got these wounds and survived, maybe I'm okay with it because it's because superheroes never get hurt. It's a part of the hero's journey, right? But at ten, he's not Hercules. You know what I mean? Like he's not like he's gonna kill the Nemean well, lion. He's got, but it's he, not but the he, same. Like he's got that 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 that. And they mentioned it somewhere, and I didn't write it down. But he's got that supreme, you know, English race. Uh, beating in his breast I actually might have written it down I, actually I didn't I didn't I mean I hear what you're saying I didn't take that as white supremacy by the way I mean no white supremacy racial supremacy I'm being I'm being very careful with my words but there's definitely but just the way he really wants to go that extra mile and be like oh my god uh, a very specific group of 
humans are better than these apes. I guess, I mean, I it's guess It's making me a, just go, hmm. To me, it sounds less genetic and more nationalist. Like, it feels more like Britons are supreme. I mean, at this point in time, like, it, I mean, how far was the empire by 1912? Everywhere. Right. I was thinking, like, doesn't it sort of crumble around Gandhi time? Yeah. Around right. 19, so, 1920, 30. Right. So it's still it's still at the peak right now. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's 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 reasonable to assume that a uh, Anglophile American would look at Europe and or uh, the the UK or Britain and say they did it right. <laughs> that I, again. That's I'm not yeah. yet making a case. I'm only saying these are things that are giving me pause. Right. Right. And I'm amassing evidence. <laughs> I'm just building a case. <laughs> I'm building a case. Uh, I hope you're building one, Doug. <laughs> I don't know why I'm defending him, but I guess I am. There has I mean, to be he's, he's entitled to, to legal representation. Oh, I have to be appointed, don't I? God damn it. <laughs> Pro bono. Yeah, but I, I still feel like he could have dialed it back. Like I think for me, like if you dial it back 20% <laughs> mm-hmm. in the descriptions, like a couple of broken ribs, ribs. yeah. Craft ribs, and maybe they bruise and they swell. Like, the kid now has a distended abdomen from the blood pooling around his wounds. True. Or, I th- like, I, I think my problem is the open wounds. Like, yeah. like, open wound in a jungle, hot, humid, bug-infested, lots of bacteria. An ape is licking your wounds, and that's supposed to be helpful? I don't think so. I'm they don't go- have dentists. I'm going to make a wild guess here. Okay. And say, it is my opinion that edgar rice burroughs was not one for research oh interesting i think he just wrote here's some shit that happened he does it in a great way we're engaged but it's not like he's like what would really happen to a wounded child in west coast africa uh tended this way nope he's just like this is what happened moving on right uh you got anything else in this chapter i do not then let us jump to chapter seven, the light of knowledge. It's another one. Uh, so, so and this is a, I have overviews. That's all I have. I don't have page notes. Um, do you have page notes? Uh, do I have page notes? Not really. No, just some plot right, points. Well, so, so in this, this is a, a lot of, lots of stuff happens in this chapter, but it's, it's uh, I'm pretty sure this is where he, Tarzan teaches himself to read. He does. And for the do first time, Edgar S. Burroughs. Yeah, I do. Uh, using primers and 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 making connections in the books that his parents brought to teach him to read he slowly learns to read he does at least make the point of saying this took years upon years yeah to 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 figure for him to even get through a child's book um but it's still a very interesting just the idea of could that happen could someone in situations even similar to this learn teach themselves to read because they're so fascinated by these strange alien artifacts. Uh, without any concept of a structure of education or how to go about uh, systematically taking apart new ideas and, and trying to understand them. Is that possible? I don't know. But it's it's fascinating to read. Yeah, it made me think about, like, imagine if you've discovered an alien artifact that was as easy for you to ex- access as a book would be to a child. Sure. And you were able to flip through it 
for long enough, do you think you would start to notice patterns? I think I would. But then again, we all, we also have to take into account that he's never even gone to school or had a conversation yeah, with people. It's true. And this is not like I've gone to school. I can understand like, what are things I need to look for. He's just, this is carte blanche, tabula rasa. It's certainly part of She's the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, cer- it's yes, tabula rasa. It's certainly um, one of the b- bigger stretches, I feel. Um, again, this and surviving that mauling uh, mm-hmm. for me so far is a 10-year-old kid teaching himself how to read because he found books. Uh, okay, fine. I you're you're stretching my suspension of disbelief, but I will allow it. Let's just move on. Is how I looked at it. Sure, uh, it's it's well written. I think. I mean, it's it's actually really interestingly written. The idea of like the writing prompt of tell me about how a kid who's never learned how to read discovers his first book. Like, what happens if that happens? Right. And I think it's a pretty good version of that. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of like the addition of like calling letters bugs, like little bugs. Mm-hmm. Again, he's he's using that thing where what does this character, what what associations does this character have? Not that I have or my listeners or my readers have. What does this kid have? And that that uh, is again, it's clever, it's helpful, it's interesting. So um, he, he he learns how to read. Then there's this. I, I mean, jump in if I'm missing something, but um. I've got, but here, my, my first note is reading, writing, and reading, writing, and defiling the corpse of your enemies. Right. There's a big <laughs> fight next. Um, there's a big fight where all it's it's sort of oddly described. Where I'm not exactly sure what's happening, but there's this this ritual called the Dum Dum, mm-hmm. um, where the apes gather around these big uh, drums that I think he suggests they create or maybe just exist in nature. They call them earthen um, drums. Yeah, like they're mounds of dirt. That they've somehow did they get drum? to bang on? It was it was very odd. It's it's hard it's basically to what could understand. be the sound of the drums deep in the jungle late at night that scares people traveling through Africa. I'm going to su- submit that they're apes right. having secret ceremonies. Right. So he uh so he, this this event happens where the drums lead to this like they they climax in this cacophonous violent orgy of ape uh, ape attacking ape, and when the rival ape dies the victorious clan pounces upon him, rips him, rends his flesh and takes away from it, uh, morsels to consume. Yeah. And my first, my note on that was, uh, I'm pretty sure Burroughs didn't know about zoonotic diseases and why you shouldn't (laughs) eat raw meat. Well, he might've, but the apes didn't. (laughs) What I'm saying is again, talking about his apparent lack of medical knowledge. Sure. If if I was writing a story that said, and then the guy ate raw meat, I would instantly go, and then he got sick, <laughs> because you shouldn't do that. And it's and no matter how jungle bred you are, you don't eat raw meat. But I mean, all animals eat raw meat in the jungle. Any carnivores? Humans don't. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. But he, he hum- was he, humans don't. Sure, but he was raised to eat this kind of diet, and he would be fucking dead. Like, is what I'm saying. There's no amount of raising to eat bacteria that doesn't make the bacteria kill you. You don't, you don't think that he was uh, toughened up from the inside out by his gorilla mother's milk? No. Well, then you clearly don't know how Edgar Rice Burroughs writes. We we, <laughs> we we have... I don't know if if humans have the capacity to, uh, you know, break down the enzymes in gorilla milk. 
It's always back to this with you. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm sorry. It's just like I'm not, and I don't know if 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 he knows. I think <laughs> I think it's one of those stretches where it's like, fine, I can buy it because it's fiction, but like. At a certain point, it's it's a little bit like I I know enough to know that if you everything you if you eat fucking ape tartar, you're probably <laughs> gonna get the runs at best, and you're not gonna have a good time in the interim. So young Tarzan gets a whole forearm to himself with the application, the judicious application of his knife. Tublat goes crazy. Right. And now they fight. Yeah. And Tarzan knows how to apply his knife a lot better than the last time. And stabs the hell out of Tublat. Yeah. Um, and then gives a wild, the wild and terrible cry of his people. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't no- taken that as a note, but it occurred enough after this point to where it occurred to me, oh, that must be the thing. Right? That I mean, that's how I heard it. I it could be anything, I'm sure, but that that gave me a little thrill and I'm like, "Oh, he could this could be the thing." Yeah, I thought the same. That was fun. I I I like that there's a there are these moments in this chapter specifically where they feel like they're these little examinations of the social structure of the ape society. And again, it's just this sort of world building that I'm really impressed by. Mm-hmm. Um because I don't know. I guess I look at it like I, I come a lot of my reading uh, up to this point. The reason I haven't haven't read a lot of these books is I read a fuck ton of comic books uh, as a kid and as an, a young adult. And um, so comics went through this phase of things, uh, this like this writing phase, this trend uh, called deconstruction where the idea was you really take you take the events that would happen in one comic book in like the 60s and you break it down to 20 or 30 issues and you make you really stretch it thin to make like, a meal of it yeah you delve into this like there's books that have like pages that have each like 20 words on them total because people are just talking conversationally and you're just moving along you're telling the stories with the images and you're people you can you can flip through a book quickly Whereas if you read a Stan Lee book, you're reading a fucking novel in 22 pages. Right. Because he just couldn't stop writing, like, words. And they're not always good. A lot of times they're just weird fourth wall shit. Like, can you believe we write this? And it's like, shut up! Just tell a good story, you dummy. Um, So, um, for me, moments like this that are sort of asides that take this opportunity to build the world in these sort of slightly indulgent, but also very informative and rich uh societies it's 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 fun it's it's cool i I like that stuff and i I really like i felt like this sequence and a number of sequences in this book and i want to point that out too there's a number of sequences in this book that so clearly lend themselves to cinema Mm -hmm. the the sequence through the mutiny so clearly cinematic like he's essentially describing camera motion he's essentially describing like stage direction for screen in these moments there's a lot of moments like that in this in this book up to this point where i keep thinking like if you were going to write it if you were going to do an adaptation of this book you would take that segment and those moments and you would build them in you would take them as the as the backbone of your story and then fill in the blanks between even some of the dialogue is just like that's screen perfect just use that arguably this is when you know cinema was just getting big and every that it was one of the cultural touchstones of the time, but 
Uh, but I'm talking like modern movies. Like this, this is written in a way that could it's easily adaptable to a modern sure. film. And I didn't see that one. What's the the one that came out like in the last ten years? Uh, the Tarzan. Uh, I, I think I I've see only it. seen the Christopher Lambert one and the Disney one. God, I, I've only I think I've only seen the Disney one. Um, and then I've seen George of the Jungle, but that's not the same. No. Uh, <laughs> um, but that other one, the, I think Sam Jackson's in that one. Am I? Am I oh, that yes, you are right. You are right. Yeah. I forgot um, about that one. Yeah, that's that's one that I kind of now, after reading this, like, if we ever got Patreon subscribers and we could watch movies and do commentaries on them, um, that I, I would probably want to watch, like, either that one or the Christopher Lambert one, because I've never seen the Christopher Lambert one, and I like Christopher Lambert, so... I, I like that Lam- one. I, I remember, like, I know it's slow, but I remember liking it. Uh, it's pretty book accurate. Pretty book. It's pretty book. It's pretty book. Accurate. Me Tarzan, you pretty book. I think we could agree that I, we don't want to watch the Casper Van Diem one from the nineties. I don't know who that is. Starship Troopers. Oh, he did a Tarzan. Johnny Rico. I believe he I, did. I, yeah. Nice. Hmm. Um, Johnny Rico rules. Okay. Uh, do you have any more notes on that chapter? I do not. Then that brings us to the Treetop Hunter. I only um, have two notes. Okay. Uh, I have an overview, so you go if you 70, have 70. Uh, he throws a pineapple at Sabor. <laughs> yeah. And at first I was like, really? Come on. I looked it up. Not only are pineapples grown in Africa, they're grown on, grown on the West Coast. So maybe he did do some research after all. I stand corrected. My apology, Burroughs. Pineapple upside down cake in your face. <laughs> you like pineapples? <laughs> It's okay, so then we have my little excerpt, which is the mighty race talk. This is where the mighty race part came in. Oh, okay. And where I said the mighty race is worrisome. Um, here's the selection that I, I, I excerpted. <laughs> Many moons ago, when he had been much smaller, he had desired the skin of Sabor, the lioness, or Numa, the lion, or Sheeta, the leopard, to cover his hairless body, that he might no longer resemble hideous Hista, the snake. But now he was proud of his sleek skin, for it betokened his descent from a mighty race, and the conflicting desires to go naked in prideful proof of his ancestry, or to conform to the customs of his own kind and wear hideous and uncomfortable apparel, found first one and then the other in the ascendancy. And it's just, I'm just like, okay, I'm making a note. I'm making a note, because yes, you could still argue, he's only talking about animals. Mm, Okay, the arguments I would make are this smacks so much of the same biblical Eden-esque shit that I would I would expect to find in Genesis. Yep, that sure. I, I don't see it as, again, as a race thing as much as a Christian thing. Like, this is, it speaks very clearly of beasts of the field. Yes. And, and mastery thereof. And, uh, and the th- same thing with, like, in terms of Eden-esque, like, shame of body and need to wear clothes... So so all that stuff fits so much of that part of the Bible that I, it just feels like that's where he's coming from, not from a like I don't I, what I guess what I'm saying is I don't think he's inventing these ideas and submitting no. them as these are what I believe and I've come up with it myself. I think he's like uh Tarzan is learning the truth. He's learning the the enlightened truth of the things the Bible says without the Bible, which 
is sort of like saying they're justified outside of the Bible, and I'm justifying them that way. I don't disagree, but I will say it is indicative of a mindset that could be worrisome. And so I'm keeping my weather eye open again. Yeah, but I think, again, another part that sort of, for me, pulls out of even the biblical stuff is the part where then Tarzan walks into this concept with all this ego about how, you know, he's a descendant of a long line of, you know, strength and, and whatever. And then, like, and then he goes, oh, you know, we had this monsoon and I was really fucking cold. And you know what? I think I get why I'd like to be covered in skin and like animal fur because that would be a bit nicer. And so the idea of there for me read as, oh, Burroughs is saying, you know, even without all this biblical backing up stuff, it's just logical. It's just like it might just be the most sane thing to do is to wear clothes because we live in inclement climates. Um, I also find it interesting that uh, he's completely reversed his stance on uh his 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 body dysmorphia now that yeah. he's seen a few pictures in a book right he's like um, oh no i'm awesome based well, on this cartoon of a child he's also completely slaying his chief enemy without with with the disadvantage of his appearance and his body mm-hmm. so and and with the full advantage of his mind and tools the concept of like passing through the stone age like tarzan does that as a character on his own he he grabs tools and starts using them sure one of the notes i had for this chapter was that i'm I'm actually pretty happy to have read this book right after reading raptor red mm-hmm. uh, because both books spend a lot of time explaining the cultures of inhuman societies hmm. and that's 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 a lot of what raptor red is just in general but that's a lot of what these first eight chapters are um so like having that like being primed with raptor red to be open to that kind of writing, mm-hmm. I think was actually weirdly uh, serendipitous. And I said the thing about the origin story, but like, so like this book is like, these chapters are the origin story of the origin story. They're the, like, like I said, all this stuff earlier. My question to you is you are, uh, at least to me, famously uh, a lover of origin stories. Mm-hmm. So how does this, uh, how how does this work with that appetite of yours? Um, it doesn't hit all the notes that I usually like, which are usually a lot of the discovering and finding joy in the the newfound powers, which is because mm. it does do that, but it's just not feeling the same as when I read those. If that makes sense? I yeah, mean, they're, they're I mean, there, but it's it's just it's it's just like move along, move along. Um, I don't know. Maybe Tarzan's only moderately, uh, engaging, but I'm, I'm definitely more invested in what's going to happen when he, when he meets Jane and how is that, you know, reintroduction to his actual culture going to go. Who's Jane? What are you talking oh, Scott, about? You know what I meant? I don't know what you mean. <sighs> um, yeah, I I think and I think to to your point probably if I'm gonna analyze it a little bit is even in this chapter where, where he tries to kill uh what's the lioness name again Sabor Sabor when he tries to kill Sabor that's him exercising his newfound powers right. that's him like trying learning to fly or he he learns to 
tie rope and he learns to tie ropes in a noose mm-hmm. and he learns to tie rope and use that tool to kill to and s- to defeat to his snare enemies. a warthog and, and learn right. from that oh i need to be better braced if i'm going to go up against something big right um yeah so he gets all these moments but like and then he fails and mm-hmm. so like he has to come to terms with that so yeah, I hear. I think I hear you. What I'm saying is, I under. I think I hear you saying that you are unsatisfied with these learn to fly chapters, and I see why. I mean, it could just be there's there's a lack of personal reflection, and that I'm going to spend some time thinking about this and and really examining it. It's just like, oh, huh, I need to change that, and it, it, it's still kind of exterior. We don't spend a lot of time in Tarzan's head, even though it says what he's thinking. I don't feel like I'm in his head a lot. I don't know if he has that self-reflection because he seems to be able to mostly just fly into a rage. Right. Like, like when he, when he fails, he throws, he, he, he screams obscenities and, and makes loud noises and throws a pineapple and shit like that, where it's like, I don't know if this is a character who's capable of it. Right. Uh, or in the way that we want, or unless it's going to be what leads into some sort of dumb romantic scene where like, Oh, the big strong man has emotions and he has self-reflections and oh look at him self-effacing and and wanting to do better and grow. I can change him kind of thing, which I'm you said there's a Jane that comes up. Uh maybe uh, she has something like that with him. Played by Minnie Driver. How many drivers do you need to play one role? A, a baby driver cuz it's Edgar Wright Burroughs. Edgar Rice Burroughs, he's back. Or Edgar Wright Burroughs. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if uh, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, framed the typewriter he made this book with. <laughs> that is a fucking deep cut. That is a weird reference to make, and I did it. I will say, here's what I know about Tarzan from from things. Obviously, Jane's gonna show up, and I remember, I believe. Maybe from the TV show, like the TV show from the 30s or 40s or whatever it was. There's a character called Cheetah. Like a chimpanzee named Cheetah? I think there's a chimpanzee named Cheetah. That I mean, there's 27 Tarzan books. I don't know if Oof. that happens in any of this book. Tarzan, Cheetah. Yeah, it was a, it was a chimpanzee. Yeah. Um, I only know that because of the far side. Oh, really? Because there's a reference to Tarzan and Cheetah, and they show the chimpanzee, and I'm like, but I thought you said Cheetah. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Then I, then I figured um, it out. <laughs> I Another note I wanted to take, just because I, I had a question about it, and as a person who does a little bit of research before the show, Tarzan was published 18 years after The Jungle Book. Uh, interesting you said that, because when I was reading about Edgar Rice Burroughs, it seemed like Rudyard Kipling really liked it and it was like dude he took what i did and ran with it kudos to him yeah so yeah yeah that i i had that note when i was thinking about it i was like you know it's very mowgli-esque um and then started thinking where's who's the first raised by wolf boys or or whatever and then i was like fucking romulus and remus maybe like hmm. um like i think it goes that far back at least but- i'm sure it goes farther back Sure, but like that—that that trope. Um, sure. I can't think of anything pre-Greek and or like again like Roman, because obviously they're Roman. But like, yeah, it's a, and I don't know if I can think of anybody more famous than Tarzan or Mowgli. Like you split the diff. 
No, not, no one more famous, certainly not. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I thought that was interesting. Buddy um, the Elf? Because of elves? Because he was raised by elves, yeah. Right. Eh, I don't <laughs> think he's more famous than Tarzan. I mean, you're right. Oh, <laughs> uh, do you, have I stepped on the neck of this bit enough? <laughs> Is it still alive? Should I rip its arms off and eat them? Yes. Uh, do you have any more notes? Nope. Okay. Um, the only other note I have is in terms of the language he uses when he writes, did you notice that sometimes, or I noticed, let me just put it that way. I noticed sometimes he'll write and he'll, he'll, there's a lot of words he'll use that are like simply archaic versions of commonly used words that we would use today. Example. Uh, bestir, bestir. Or surcease. Mm-hmm. Um, so that keeping that in mind, uh, that brings us to a new word alert. New word alert. Are you ready for like a two-hour new word alert? <laughs> yes. All right. Here we go. Sophistry. 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 Being a sophist? Uh, it's a noun. Yep. Subtly deceptive reasoning or argumentation. Okay. I'm sure I've been accused of that. Peroration. <laughs> what? Peroration. Peroration. These, these are all words you just read. Peroration? Peroration. Is it some sort of... Is it some sort of hole put in something? Peroration. Uh, is it speaking aloud? Yes. Most. Okay. It's a noun. Yep. The concluding part of a discourse and especially in oration. Mm. Or a highly rhetorical speech. Hmm. All right. Ready? Yep. Invective. Invective. I feel like. Invective. I feel like that's insults. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, insulting or abusive language, yeah. an abusive expression or speech. I've often heard hurled invectives at someone. That's that's what you probably read. That's probably how you read it. Well, I certainly haven't read it anytime recently. <laughs> All right, here we go. Per adventure. It's another per word. So the end of an adventure. Per adventure. No. Ah, oh, I was thinking of peroration. Per peroration. I thought it was the end of. What is per yeah. adventure? Per adventure means doubt. There, I don't think there's a way you could have context clued that out of it. Well, I per adventure that. Arca- the this the adverb version of it, which may be how it was intended to be used here, which is very similar, is just says it's archaic for like perhaps mm. or possibly. So again, inconclusive, right. like tenuous. Um, I think I think per is a is a prefix that we don't usually think about mod- modifying words or root words, and so that's something that doesn't really occur to me. Well, I'm and also being a person who's a you know a person, a, a troglodyte. It's hard for me to to differentiate sometimes between pre and per, sure, which mean entirely different things. 
and arguably they sometimes they might mean before or after <laughs> uh, according to per oration mm-hmm. whereas pre oration would have been like the beginning of an argument the preamble um, if you will the preamble exactly so preamble As opposed to the preamble per oration ugh whatever <laughs> here we go van what van van V A N van van yeah okay that's that's it's it's like a truck but it's more enclosed sometimes it has a sliding door you can move things with it basically yeah the second definition which i believe is the one he's using is chiefly british an enclosed railroad freight or baggage car ah i don't even remember it being used it was i, I don't doubt it it was <laughs> All right, here we go. Discomfiture. Discomfiture. Um, not being comfortable. It says noun the act of of discomforting the state of being discomforted. Is so that, let's uh, go look at those. Okay. <laughs> discomfit again, not discomfort. Discomfit. So out of shape a, then. Is a verb. To put into a state of perplexity and embarrassment. Yeah, an to, uncomfortable situation, a discomfortable to, situation. Well, I think it, it's it's not, but it's not the same as like being cramped or being like like squished or like physically discomfortable. It's it's very much a ego discomfort. So, to frustrate the plans of, to thwart, uh, to defeat in battle. Yeah, the state of being confused, embarrassed, or upset. Like, to me, discomfort is like, I'm either, it's like, it's a physical thing. It's like a painful thing. It's like, physically, you're like, you're contorted to discomfort. Mm -hmm. And if this is a bit I'm stepping on, I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) You've got to know this. I'm going to step on it. The new word alert is no place for jokes. This is hollowed and hallowed ground. Well, I hope it's shoring up. I don't know what that means. Because it's hollow and we don't want it to collapse. Assiduous. Assiduous. It is late to be doing a new word alert. <laughs> uh, it's only two thirty in the morning. Uh, it, it's a word I've I, I I I've run into a lot, and I can't define it for you. Assiduous. Showing adjective. Showing great care, attention, and effort, marked by casual, unremitting attention or persistent application. That's what I was gonna say. I know. Ready? Yep. Erudition. Erudition? Erudition. It's when they, they put out a, a newspaper for your ears. New. No. It's a noun. Extensive knowledge acquired chiefly from books, profound, recondite, or bookish learning. If the next word's recondite, I'm going to slap you through FaceTime. Recondite. Fuck you. <laughs> recondite. 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 Was that honestly the next word? <laughs> Piece of shit. Recondite. What's, what's recondite? <laughs> It's an adjective. <laughs> okay. 
means difficult or impossible for one of ordinary understanding or knowledge to comprehend. <laughs> Deep. Of, relating to, or dealing with something little known or obscure. Or the third uh, definition, hidden from sight, concealed. That's a good word. Bestir. Bestir. To move, to get to get up. To get on up. Yeah. Yep. Uh, verb, to rouse to action. Get going. Yep. Uh, and, and, and later we'll come on to other ones of these, but I noticed that there's a handful of these that have these like weird prefixes that have essentially through the evolution of our language has have fallen off. Like vestigial prefaces mm. or prefixes. Like the bister, it, to stir, sure. to rile. Like it... Uh, there's others that have those again like this next one has another one uh another of this this b prefix that just should fall off and it'll be the right word so here you go here's the next one betoken betoken a token it's a verb that means to typify beforehand mm-hmm. to give evidence of to show all right here's another one tidbit Fitbit? Titbit. Tidbit. No. Titbit. Is it like tidbit? A less common variant of tidbit. Okay. He said titbit, and I was like, what the fuck is a titbit? (laughs) Here we go. Next one. Felch. To steal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, to steal secretly or (laughs) casually. But you get it. You yeah. get the points. Yeah. I'm just okay. saying. Jesus. Wow. Ready? Next yep. word. Serried. Serried? Serried. S-E-R-R-I-E-D. Is that like serrated? Like in ridges? Like in uh, repeating shaped pattern kind of thing? Definition two, marked by ridges. Okay. The first one is crowded or pressed together, but I believe the use in this instance was the secondary use. Gotcha. I believe it had to do with teeth. Sure. Surcease. Surcease. Made famous by another Edgar. Uh, I believe it means it's basically cease. It's basically to end. Yep. Yep. It's the thing that has a vestigial prefix to desist from action, to come to an end, or just cease. Surcease of sorrow is used in the raven. Alright. Last one. Impanel. Impanel. Impanel, huh? <laughs> What's that one mean? Impanel. It's a verb. Oh, yeah? It means to enroll in or on a panel. <laughs> Um, but you know what you don't have? What? Clean-limbed. Oh. Like, what? Clean, Is that in the book? Cl- it's in the book. Twice. Applied to Alice early on and later... Is it Kala? Does it mean, like, shaven? No. It just oh. means well-formed or shapely. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that every, I... the, the women had clean-limbed arms, but it was, you know, human and ape-alike. Nice. Um, all right, well, how are you feeling about Tarzan so far? <sighs> I'm enjoying it. 
I like the I like adventure novels. It's always a little there, there's a reconciliation I have to do because so much of that going into the mysterious world has to deal with fear of other and that can lead to some problematic places real quick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um I mean Lovecraft definitely uh even even Temple of Doom famous for some problematic scenes but mm-hmm. it's hard to have that kind of adventure without doing it uh really only Star Trek I think is attempted that I can think of that exploring new you know worlds without having it be all imperialist imperialist alienation strange different is evil and bad automatically Right. Probably Doctor Who, too. But um, still, there's a thrilling aspect to it, and it is engaging. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm enjoying it. I guess at this point, I'm really mostly enjoying how it's written, not mm-hmm. necessarily what it's written about, because unlike you, I don't like origin stories that much. I like the adventures the character I'm familiar with goes on. Mm-hmm. And, adventure, and, and pre- uh, prequels or origin stories are more frequently preoccupied with letting you know the extent of the character's uh, early limits and their backstory. And I am so accustomed to that being essentially a Wikipedia article that you could read very quickly that like you get the cliff notes and you're like, I got it. Now let's, let's read the real stories um, that this is fine. Uh, I, I, like I said though, the, the unique thing about maybe not unique, but the interesting thing about this specific book is that so far these first eight chapters have been mostly little tiny vignettes telling a a story about this character's many backstories. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's more interesting. It's more engaging for that, uh, reason. But again, mostly for me, I really like the way it's written. It's, uh, it's making my, it's making my brain work, uh, in a way that doesn't often happen. Right. So next episode, we're going to be reading chapter nine, man and man, through and no further than chapter 15, the forest god. So again, read through and no further than the forest god. And if it helps even more, do not read most remarkable. I don't even know why you would say that. Do you think there's people out there that have trouble understanding you? I don't know about having trouble understanding me, but having under- uh, having trouble understanding <laughs> simple instructions? Maybe. I get it. It's not that simple. Do not read Most Remarkable. Read The Forest God. Okay. Okay. Um... Cool. Well, uh, that was obviously Death Readers. I'm Doug. I'm Rob. Thanks for listening. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. These reviews help new listeners find us and join the discussion. Follow us on Twitter and like our new Facebook page for Death Readers News. Become a patron at Patreon slash Death Readers. And please discuss us extensively on Reddit. (laughs) Lazy Lob and Crazy Cob are weaving webs to wind me. I am far more sweet than other meat, but still they cannot find me. Here I am, naughty little fly. You are fat and lazy. 
You cannot trap me, though you try. In your cobwebs, crazy. What the hell was that? Was that one of Gollum's riddles? I don't know. I flipped to a page. I flipped to a random page, Rob. Was that Hobbit or Fellowship? Oh, you're so learned. You tell me. I think it was Hobbit. Yeah, it was. Ha! The one with riddles. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Yeah, but no one should watch that. Why? I love Dead Alive. It's Peter Jackson, you know. It's got the Sackville Bagginses. It's got an ass-kicking priest. Do you want to do a podcast? Yeah. Hyperactive. Remember when he's punching the baby in the bag, and he looks up at the people who are watching him punch that baby? He's like, hyperactive. It's funny. It's okay, though, because it was a zombie baby. I just want to do a show. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey. Hey, man. I'm here for you. <laughs> so that brings us to ch- chapter one. I'm so- Hold on a second. I'm not prepared for this. How many times? How many times? <laughs> I couldn't remember if it was if it was titled chapter or not, so it's not. You can just say it brings us to, and then I will go from there. Because you threw me when you said chapter. It is a chapter, but it's not titled chapter, so I won't use the word chapter. You see? Good. Let's go. Pick it up. That brings us to chapter one. Out to sea. You know that's what we always do, right? I always say that brings us to chapter number, and then you say... No, you, no, you usually say that brings us to... And then when I'm, like, lost in some thought, you're like, oh, Jesus, he's he's gone again. Chapter. And I'm like, oh, right. My, my part. How do you want me to do it? <laughs> Consistently. The same way every time. I don't have to. I don't feel like See, I have to tell you See, the thing is, this. I feel like it's different every time. Or I feel like I, I feel like it's, I feel I like the way I said I it was is the way it is every time. I know. I know. I know. And you're saying I'm wrong. No, I'm and not, I just want to do it right. I'm, I'm, you're, you are wrong, but we will learn together. Okay. So that brings us to Out to Sea. No, that brings us to and then you say that brings us to Out to Sea. Chapter one. Oh, okay. Fucking editions. No chapter. Mine has chapters. Okay. Mine doesn't. So that's okay, a problem. So that, I, we understand like, now. I will do like it your way for you. And I understand now. Okay. Aren't you glad and, that we have these little talks? I am glad we do the edition edition. Right? It's so. for it's precisely to avoid instances like this. Yes. So And that brings us to Chapter six. Seven. Chapter seven. Jungle Battle. Nope, no. my bad. Chapter six. Yeah, chapter that's six, what I thought. Right. Cause I'm like, we've got three more chapters. Start over. Yep. Chapter six. Jungle battles. <laughs> you were totally frozen, so I didn't hear anything you said. No, I wasn't frozen. I was playing dead. Oh. Why? I, don't know. <laughs> I thought you would go, are you frozen? And I would go, nope. Um, <laughs> sorry. That's okay. I heard everything you said and I didn't say anything. So, um, 